How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout for joy aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are just so humbled to come into your presence. Lord, you are indeed a God that does great things. Lord, that your timing is always perfect and your plan is always sovereign. Lord, we just thank you so much for defeating our sins, for freeing us, for renewing us, for changing us from the inside out. Thank you, Jesus, so much that you are our light, that you show us the way, that you are our life, that, Lord, you are the way to eternal life. And, Lord, we know that you are the way to uh, our living God. And we are so thankful for the Holy Spirit, who is our guide and our counselor, who never leaves us. But we're so thankful that as we're, we've been studying through the book of John, that we see Jesus, Jesus as Lord. Jesus as Lord who calms the storms and the seas. Jesus as Lord who heals the deaf and the lame, the blind. Jesus who raises the dead. And Jesus who teaches. And Jesus who calls disciples. And Jesus who even calls each of us. Thank you, God, so much for calling each one of us lovingly to be your very own children. Thank you for filling our lives with your grace, gifts that we don't deserve. And thank you for giving us mercy for withholding the punishment that we do for all of our sins. Thank you, Lord, that your book is filled with promises for us. And Lord, thank you that you made us your holy priesthood, your children, for blessing us with your presence each day. And Lord, we pray that as we continue to learn and grow, that we would be blessings to others around us and that we would glorify you, that we would be a fragrant offering to you. We thank you, Lord, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, thank you, Charles. Well, we continue our studies in John, and we come to chapter 12 today. You know, scientists tell us how powerful our sense of smell is. Apparently, we can distinguish at least one trillion different odors. Who knew? <laughs> smell is indeed a very powerful um, sense. And it's very powerful in triggering memories. I'm told that smells are handled by the olfactory bulb in our brain, but then they go immediately to the region of the brain related to emotion and memory. So this means that when you walk into a house where cookies are baking, you could be carried back to perhaps your grandma's house. For me, the smell of chocolate baking, as in chocolate cake baking, takes me back to my childhood and my mom's kitchen. Kitchen. She makes a killer chocolate cake. Scent somehow anchors our memories. 
within us. And I think the story of Mary anointing Jesus at Bethany probably was anchored firmly into the memory bank of those first disciples because of the pervasive aroma of Mary's perfume. Now, ultimately, this aroma would have anchored two images in their mind, the boundless worth of Jesus and the extravagant devotion of Mary. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you fill us this morning with an aroma of your love and your grace and your mercy, the aroma of life. Through your spirit, speak your word to each one of us this morning through this incredible story. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I alluded to last week, chapter 12 is an important chapter in this gospel. It's the hinge of the gospel. It separates the uh, book of signs, chapters 1 to 11, uh, with the theater of glory, the Passion Week, chapters 12 to 21. In this chapter, Jesus is anointed, he enters Jerusalem, and then he gives his final public teaching. Today, of course, is the anointing. So I, inv- I invite you into our text today. If you have your Bibles, you can turn, them to, turn to John 12, beginning in verse 1, where we set the scene. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Now, if you remember, John introduces his book with a week, and now he ends his book with a week. Six days before Passover is where we begin this important chapter. Six days means Jesus will be resting in the tomb during the Sabbath. Easter Saturday, and the seventh day is, of course, Easter Sunday. This is now the third Passover in this book. If you remember, the first one was when Jesus cleansed the temple back in chapter 2. The second one was chapter 6, where Jesus feeds the 5,000, and now this one. Now, as we have said all along, these feasts were important times to remember and renew. Passover, set in the springtime, was one of the three biggies, and it remembered the bitter suffering of the Israelites at the hands of the Egyptians, but it also remembered the power of God, rescuing them from Egypt, parting the Red Sea, and miraculously providing manna and quail in the desert. But the Jews also renewed their hope during Passover, the hope that God would raise up a new leader like Moses to lead them. And by the first century, there was a growing expectation that during some Passover feast, that prophet, the prophet like Moses, would arrive. And not only arrive, but bring with him the same deliverance that Moses had brought with him with their ancestors. So Jesus, as a good Jew, comes to Jerusalem for this Passover feast. 
Now, at the end of chapter 11, after the religious leaders had decided to kill Jesus, that text from last week, Jesus had left Jerusalem and had gone into the wilderness again with his disciples. So here he returns to the place of danger, the Bethany that is near Jerusalem. And as any one of us would do to save hotel expenses, he lodges at a friend's house. And he has a dinner with his good friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now we have to understand that this meal was a clear demonstration of bravery on the part of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. If the authorities find out, they're, they're in big trouble. Martha, as we see her do so often, is the one serving the meal. Now I can imagine her spending the entire previous day getting everything ready. This was her thing. This is where she shines. And I can imagine that the aroma of the meal would have been wafting through the house all that previous day. Lazarus, on the other hand, is glad to be alive. <laughs> and he's in the presence of Jesus. Don't you wish you could have talked to Lazarus? I've many times wished I could have talked to him. I can imagine him saying, hey guys, I met Abraham and Moses and David. But the best part is when I walked out and Peter's eyes were the size of baseballs. <laughs> So there's excitement in the air because it's the Passover feast. And this dinner is warm, intimate, and a tender affair with friends and family. It's probable that this dinner is to thank and honor Jesus for raising Lazarus from the dead. So what does Mary do? Verse three. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So in the middle of dinner, Mary gets up, gets a jar of costly perfume, anoints Jesus' feet, and wipes his feet with her hair. I think Mary is one of the three most fortunate people in history. All three are women, and all three are named Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is obviously fortunate to have given birth to the incarnate God. Mary Magdalene was the first person to see Jesus alive on Easter morning, and then she's the first person to pronounce the Easter gospel. And this Mary, Mary of Bethany, the sister of Lazarus, who gets to touch and wipe Jesus' feet. For the second time in a week, Mary anoints a man's body for burial, which is exactly how Jesus will interpret this act. In the ancient world, both kings and corpses were anointed. In the Old Testament, anointing the head of a king was done by a priest. Here, a woman takes the role of anointing Jesus as king, but she anoints his feet. He is anointed as one would anoint a corpse. 
So this act by Mary is a prophetic act, preparing Jesus to be a suffering king. Mary seems to get it before everyone else. And her extravagant act prepares everyone there and all of us to read the Palm Sunday story correctly. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem as a king, our text for next week, he will be a different kind of king. He will not rule from a throne. He will rule from a cross. Mary anoints his feet. In the first century, guests coming for a meal would get their feet anointed with oil to keep their feet from cracking. Mary is not using that oil. The oil Mary uses is nard, a very rare and precious spice from northern India. It was used in a variety of ways at that time. It was used medicinally. It was used as an aromatic wine, as a breath scent, interesting, and as a perfume for burial. But it's only used in small quantities because it's so expensive. Sometimes it's mixed with other things, but in this case, John tells us it is pure nard, meaning it's very, very expensive. In other words, this is not something a woman would normally carry in her purse. This isn't something you would pick up at Nordstrom's on the way to the dinner party. And this is probably a family heirloom. And what is even more striking is how much she uses. She uses a pound of it. Think of a soda can. A pound. We later find out it's worth 300 denarii. That's an entire year's wages. In our money, it's about $25,000. $25,000. This is indeed an extravagant act. And John tells us that she used so much, the aroma filled the entire house. And then after pouring this perfume on his feet, she wipes it with her hair. Now that was taboo in that culture. Women weren't allowed to put down their hair in public. But once again, this speaks to the extravagance of Mary's act. She's acting with abandon. With abandon in her love and devotion for Jesus. She's lost all self-consciousness. She hopes her small circle of friends and family will understand her lack of restraint. Indeed, this beautiful aroma of perfume which wafts through the entire house is the aroma of life. It contrasts with the stench of death, the death of Lazarus. Remember how Martha had protested to Jesus when, Je when Jesus said, take away the stone? Remember how she protested? She said, by this time, Lord, there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. But here, the aroma of life drowns out the stench of death. 
Mary's perfume and worship with abandon wafts through the entire house. Authentic worship of Jesus is never merely private. It spills over. It spills over onto others. Of course, as we read in our scripture reading, it can be viewed in different ways by others. It's an aroma of life for some. It's an aroma of death for others. Many commentators link this scene with the anointing of Jesus by an unnamed woman in Mark 14. Now in that scene, Jesus is anointed on the head and the thought is that Mary uses so much perfume that it runs down his whole body onto his feet. And Mary then wipes his feet with her hair. Now if that's the case, then the aroma of that perfume would have stayed on Jesus' garments, perhaps his entire body, through the Passion Week. So while he's suffering, while he's being flogged, while he's on the cross, he will remember that beautiful act of Mary, of love and devotion. So we're just a few verses into our story and we already sense our call our call to follow Mary's lead in total abandon for Jesus. Think about it. Think how much you make in a year. Now imagine what kind of love and devotion, joy and thanksgiving would lead you to part with a year's wages in this way. Hmm. But now the entire mood of the story changes. Verse four. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, John says, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. I am told when artists draw the first three verses, the colors used are the warmest, most tender colors available. Then we hit verse four and the colors turn cold and uninviting. Seeing, perceiving an aroma of death in Mary's extravagant act, Judas responds quite negatively. His comment, though, helps explain how extravagant Mary's act is. As I said earlier, 300 denarii equals one year of wages. And and at first, his comment sounds reasonable. Sounds, yeah, responsible. 
sounds pretty pious. But John reveals the real motivation for Judas' comment. Judas, who was in charge of the money bag, was a thief. He was a thief. That's the same word used for the false shepherds in chapter 10. Judas is a false shepherd. He wants money. He cares nothing for the sheep. In the ancient world, it was well known that treasurers grew rich by abusing their duties, usually embarrassing their master. Now, we've known since chapter 6 about Judas. Back then, Jesus identified one of the 12 as a devil, to which John identifies as Judas. The contrast with Mary could not be more pronounced. Mary is extravagantly generous. Judas is thoroughly greedy. Mary is humbly submissive. Judas is arrogantly cold and calculated. Mary is selfless. Judas is selfish. Mary kneels in utter devotion. Judas stands in self-righteous judgment. Mary gives $25,000 to Jesus. Judas sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. As one writer says, together they serve as vivid illustrations of Jesus' own teaching. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Judas treasured money, so his heart went after money. Proverbs speaks of warped minds leading to conflict because one is looking for selfish gain. And typically this happens when nursing hidden sin. Judas is most definitely nursing hidden sin. But Jesus comes to Mary's defense. He rebukes Judas, verse 7. He knows Mary's heart. He knows she's genuine. Now what he says in verse 7 is difficult to translate, but it seems he's saying that she had intended to keep the nard for his burial. But regardless of how it's translated, Jesus connects Mary's act to his burial. He is now prepared for death. And his rebuke of Judas is a further invitation to us to genuine discipleship, genuine devotion to him. We shouldn't follow Judas, we should follow Mary and Mary's example. We should turn from all that is greedy and arrogant and selfish and self-righteous and turn toward generosity and humility and selflessness and an utter devotion. We should repent of those times when we wrap our inner greed in statements of exterior righteousness. That's to be a crustacean, as we talked about last week. And I think a good word for all of us, we need to be careful of judging others, especially when others worship differently from us. Like when others say amen <laughs> or hallelujah or they seem to go over the top in their worship of Jesus. 
Jesus then brings the poor, the topic of the poor into the conversation. And what he says brings some tension between personal devotion and social responsibility. Now what is maybe most important is that in the Greek, the word order clearly emphasizes Jesus clearly emphasizes Jesus. Jesus is not saying here that the poor are not important. He's simply saying that he is of utmost importance. Throughout scripture, it is clear that the poor, the needy, and the vulnerable have a special place in the heart of God. From the very beginning, God called his people to care for the needy. In fact, Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy here saying that the poor will always be with you. And the argument in Deuteronomy is that because the poor are always with you, you should give generously and give open-handedly toward them. In the book of James, genuine faith is demonstrated through the care of orphans and widows in their distress. To care for the needy is not peripheral to our faith, it is central to our faith, and it's a primary expression of our faith. And I thought I'd take this time to give you an update on RSCP. This is why we're doing RSCP. During this month of October, we began serving the needy in our parking lot with the rotating Safe Car Park program. And can I just say how proud I am of our PVCC family. It has been an absolute joy to watch you all serve the needy. We have over 70 volunteers who in twos and threes are showing up every morning, every evening for the month to care for those in need. Thursday nights are community dinner nights and they have been unbelievable. <laughs> And our guests, extremely grateful. And it's making a difference. I'd love to share lots of stories, but I'll share just one. One of our guests shared how thankful he is because it's a safe place. It's a safe place to stay overnight. He's able to sleep peacefully at night. Not long ago, when he was parked on the street, someone broke into his car while he was sleeping, and he had to fight off the intruder. He got stabbed in the process. He is so thankful for this ministry and all of you. Every one of them has expressed gratitude for our PBCC family. The care for the needy is central to our faith. But devotion to Jesus takes priority in fact, we love the needy not to feel better about ourselves, but because we are devoted to Jesus. We give glasses of cold water, or in this case, bottles of water, <laughs> in his name, not our name. And in our text... Jesus' physical presence at this dinner party unquestionably takes priority over everything else. Unquestionably. Soon, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth would be gone. 
the unbelievable era of the living God putting on flesh is about to come to an end. And Mary got it. Here's the most valuable person in history and a soda can of perfume isn't close enough, isn't close enough to honor him. Wiping his feet with her hair is the least she can do. It's as if she says, my hair is the most beautiful and the most clean thing I have, but if it could serve to magnify your glory and your goodness, it would be my honor to turn it into a rag for your feet, Jesus. She gets it. Judas, unfortunately, doesn't. Verse nine. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. As you can imagine, Lazarus has become a bit of a spectacle. Many people were coming to faith in Jesus because of him, so the target is now on his back. The authorities won't stop at killing just Jesus, they want to take out Lazarus as well. And what we learn here is that extravagant devotion is costly. It's costly. Genuine love is costly. Of course, Mary's actions costed her probably some embarrassment, an entire year's wages. It probably costed her her future. For Martha, her sacrifice was found in service and time. As one writer says, it was found in perspiration, not perfume. <laughs> For Lazarus, it was probably his life. Extravagant devotion is costly. You have to count the cost when you decide to follow Jesus. As Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a person, he bids them come and die. It may not cost us our lives, it costed Bonhoeffer his. Following Jesus is difficult and costly. His kingdom is not of this world. It's built on self-giving, servanthood, and sacrifice. It goes against everything that the world holds valuable. The world exalts self, seeks power, and seeks to stay comfortable at all costs. The world does what's right in their own eyes. We, followers of Jesus, we deny ourselves, and we do not lean on our own understanding. So following him in extravagant devotion will inevitably be uncomfortable, difficult and costly. But there's so much more, as we've said today. 
without words, but with actions and an aroma. Mary has shown us what extravagant devotion to Jesus looks like. Mary recognizes Jesus' love for her and in turn offers back the best she has, the best she has for him. She acts with abandon, with lack of restraint. She, she is generous, humble, and selfless, and her authentic worship pervades. It's pervasive over everyone else. But isn't genuine love extravagant by nature? Isn't extravagant love, isn't genuine love extravagant by nature? It is, isn't it? Genuine love is acting for others at whatever personal cost to myself. Jesus is worth everything to Mary, so she shows extravagant love, gratitude, and devotion back to him. You don't count pennies when you're genuinely in love, do you? When I was uh, pursuing Suzanne, I wasn't thinking of saving money. I didn't care about sacrificing my time. I was madly in love with her. <laughs> I didn't take her to McDonald's. <laughs> I didn't take her to, the, uh, to the, get samples at Costco for dinner. I didn't count pennies. I was madly in love with her. Although her mom still hasn't forgiven me because on our wedding night we went to KFC because we were so tired. We were really tired and Suzanne was okay with it. So, but um, her mom still hasn't forgiven me for it. Um, the truth is we don't count pennies when it's genuine love. Nothing is wasted time when it's genuine love. The love for the other just pours out of us like this expensive perfume or like an atmospheric river. <laughs> yes, genuine love and devotion is by definition extravagant. Well, as I conclude, I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up here on, here on stage. So here's the question for us. Look at those words. Costly, with abandon, no restraint, generous, humble, selfless, pervasive. Is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth it? That's the question. Is he worth extravagant love and devotion? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world who takes away you and my sin. The bread of life, the light of the world, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life. Throughout the gospel, Jesus is identified with the gifts he brings to us. So is he worth our extravagant devotion? I think the 19th century Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McShane, captures the worth of Jesus well. He says this, 
He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners like you and me. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Jesus. Live much in the smile of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eyes settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that he is. Can you see why an hour and a half on a Sunday morning isn't enough? Why Paul said to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Offer our entire lives as a living sacrifice. As Mary's example shows us, he is worthy. He is worthy of our extravagant devotion. And if any voice tells you to moderate your love for Jesus, don't listen to it. If any voice tells you to lessen your devotion for Jesus, don't listen to it. If any voice tells you to restrain your affection for Jesus, don't listen to it. Go after Jesus with abandon, like Mary, and create an aroma of life as sweet and pervasive as the aroma of my mom's chocolate cake. (laughs) Amen and amen. So now receive this benediction from the writer of Hebrews. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, an aroma of life, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are a pleasing fragrance to God. Amen. Go in peace.